Open your Bibles this morning, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I realized that about, uh, I guess, two, maybe three months ago, I brought a message from these very same verses. And uh, in case you're maybe thinking that I'm getting absent-minded and about to preach the same thing again, uh, that's not the case. I'm preaching from the same verses, but, uh, but a different message about the same subject, which is very obvious. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. As I think most of you know, the word gospel means good news. We could say that this is great news, and that would be right. But if I said this morning that I was going to preach about great news, you know, that might apply to several different things. Uh, I might even say I'm going to preach about news that is glorious. And you know, there's a sense in which that could be applied to several different subjects. But if I say I'm going to speak to you this morning about the greatest news, that could mean only one thing. Because if it is the greatest, well, then there is absolutely nothing that can equal it. And so this morning, I want you to think about the gospel, not just as the good news, but the greatest news. And I can say that without any reservation, because it is true. It was transmitted to man from God. It's tremendous. It's thrilling. It's transforming. And no wonder Paul said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He felt that way because there's absolutely nothing like the gospel. It stands head and shoulders above anything our mind can imagine. Wordsmiths, speech writers, have finely crafted statements extolling the gospel. Um, others, great orators, for example, have used flowery phrases and false diction in trying to glorify the gospel. The poets have woven their words together in a way that is instructive and inspiring, trying to beautify the gospel. Songwriters have set those words to music that moves us emotionally. Writers, that is authors, have gone to great length in writing numerous chapters and large volumes trying to cover every minute detail associated with the gospel. And preachers have pulled out all of the stops and used every possible means trying to convey the glorious gospel. But look, folks, when it's all said and done, 
It is the strict quotation from the Scripture that gives us the best definition. Now, I said all of that to say this. We have been called to preach the gospel, not about the gospel. And, and, And there's nothing in the world more important, nothing more informative, nothing more intriguing, nothing more inspirational or impressive or incredible or impactful because the gospel of Jesus Christ has done more to change mankind than everything else put together. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said, There is a power in God's gospel beyond all description. George Whitfield, the famous preacher of many years ago, that brought such great revival here even in America, said, Other men may preach the gospel better than I, but no man can preach a better gospel than I. And he's right because there is only one gospel and that is what we have just read here this morning. You know, we live in a day where it's really difficult seemingly for us to keep first things first. You know, we tend to get things out of balance, out of kelder as we'd say back in the Ozarks. And and a lot of times we do the same thing when it comes to our theology. It even happens in churches Believe me, you could attend some churches for years and years and never hear the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. By the grace of God, I'm determined that's never going to happen here in this church. Before we examine this, I want you to notice in verse number 3, this little phrase where Paul says, first of all, first of all. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I can read what they have written. And this phrase here has to do with that which is first in prominence, that which is most important, that which is foremost. You see, not only does it speak of the order of time, but the order of importance. So he, when he says, first of all, I delivered unto you the gospel, first of all, he wants them to know that this is first and is foremost. It's the fundamental foundation of all that we believe as Christians. An old preacher many years ago by the name of Samuel Zimmer said, it is the keystone of the arch and the cornerstone of the temple of truth. The cross is not only the universal symbol of Christianity, it is the universal and unmistakable message. And that's what we forget sometimes. You know, it's one thing to wear a cross around your neck or to put a cross out on a church building and to identify yourself with Christianity, but it's another thing to get down to the bare-bone facts as to what the gospel of Jesus Christ really is. The gospel is stated in the Scriptures, so we don't have to guess about it, do we? It's stated right here. Not only is it stated in the Scriptures, it's symbolized in the two ordinances. Whether you're thinking of baptism or the Lord's Supper, you see the same thing implied, and that is the sacrificial death of the Son of God who gave His life for us and His resurrection. We see that the gospel was shared by the apostles and the early church. I mean, that was the heartbeat of their ministry. That was the very core of everything they had to say to the world. 
And we have sang about it in all of the hymns down through the centuries. So that's why, without any hesitation, I say that there's no message of greater importance, nothing that is more urgently needed or of such mighty power as the gospel of Jesus Christ. Regardless of what we do or how we do it, it's never enough without the gospel. As I said, the orators can use all of their flowery phrases and shocking illustrations and perfect diction and all of that. But when it's all said and done, if the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't preached, there's no power in the message. Because the gospel, as the Bible says, is the power of God unto salvation. If there's any message that needs to be repeated, this is it. You know, there's a lot of things I don't know, but there's one thing I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, and that is the gospel is the only message that can save your soul. So this morning, I want to focus your attention on the greatest news. I say that in the first place, notice here in verse 1, 2, and 3, it is delivered to us. He says, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, also that ye have received and wherein ye stand. Notice verse 3, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. So Paul says, I have received it, and now I am delivering it to you. He is delivering what had been delivered to him. In other words, he heard the gospel, He received the gospel, and then he repeated the gospel. Now that's important because the gospel wasn't designed by man or decided by man. It was designed by God. It was delivered to us by the Lord, you see. It's not something that, that, you know, the brilliant minds of the world got together and discussed how is it we can devise a message that will lead men from sin to heaven. And so they all get together and pool their mental resources and come up with some sort of a philosophy or a scheme whereby that if we just believe this message, everything's going to be all right. Our sins will be forgiven and we We'll be able to go to heaven when we die. Uh, Man would have never come up with anything like this. You see, from the very beginning, before the foundation of the world was laid, it was God who laid out, who designed every detail as to the plan of salvation. And it was God who in His providence caused that message to be delivered to us. So make no mistake about it. This is a message that is delivered to you directly from the Lord Himself. Notice not only does He deliver it, but He defines it for us. Now we could say a lot of different things about the gospel, but notice Paul reduces it all down to the three basic elements. Notice, first of all, he says, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now, Did you notice he doesn't mention the pre-existence of Christ? You see, when Mary gave birth to that little baby, she gave birth to a, to a baby in this world, but that, that child, that person existed throughout eternity. The person within. 
That's why the Bible says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh. But notice, Paul doesn't mention the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not to say it isn't important. It certainly is important. But he makes no mention of it here. He doesn't mention his birth. And we can talk a lot about the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. He makes no mention of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And my, that could occupy our minds for months on end to try to trace every step during his lifetime. He makes no mention of the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, he could have spent a lot of time going into all of the various teachings of Christ, but there's no mention of that. He doesn't even mention the miracles of Christ. All of those things are noteworthy, but they do not constitute the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. And nor is it enough to simply say Christ died. He could have just said that. He could have said Christ died But just about everybody believes he died, but that's not the good news that he died. The good news is, notice, he died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That's the good news. He didn't just die. His life wasn't just taken from him. He gave his life freely for us. He died for our sins and according to the Scriptures. That's the first element. Look, a lot of folks years ago, they decided that they were going to take the, the, the reference to blood out of all of the hymn books. They felt like, you know, that was offensive to people to sing, there's power in the blood. And some of the newer hymnals came out with the words related to blood all taken out. Look, you just ruined the message. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, the Bible says. I mean, look, this is the very heartbeat and the very core of our message to the world that Christ died. He didn't just die, but He died for our sins and and did so according to the Scriptures. But notice, that's the first element. The second element, notice verse number 4, and that He was buried. Now, sadly, this is the part that generally gets overlooked, and maybe some people are wondering, well, why in the world is this important at all? Well, for one thing, and I say for one thing because there are several other things that could be mentioned. We we could go back and look at the scapegoat back in the Old Testament during the Levitical priesthood. And, you know, we sing songs about buried, he carried my sins far away. A lot of people, you know, sing that song and have no idea what that's talking about. Buried, he carried my sins far away. He was like the scapegoat over which the sins of the people were confessed and it was released in the wilderness to take, representing taking the sins of the people away. You see, all through the Levitical priesthood back in those days, everything was a shadow and a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. The very dimensions and the materials and everything else in the temple all spoke about some aspect of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So there's a lot that could be said about that, but notice the key here, he says, and that he was buried, and it's important because of the fact that when Jesus foretold his death, you remember that, right? He told his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem and suffer many things and I'm going to be killed, you know, and went on to say and be raised again the third day, but they quit listening. And they tried to persuade him to not go to Jerusalem. 
Peter literally took hold of him and said, Not so, Lord. In other words, we're not going to allow this to happen to you. We'll not permit this. They didn't understand. They were confused. Let me tell you something. They would not for one second have consented to his burial unless they knew for certain that he was dead. That, that's why Paul says not only, not only did he die for our sins according to the Scriptures, but he was buried. You see, there were those even in that day that proposed what has been known as the swoon theory. That Jesus didn't really die. He just fainted away, that he lapsed into a coma. And then he was placed in the tomb, and, you know, three days later, the cool air of the tomb revived him, and, you know, we mistook that for a resurrection. Make no mistake about it, they would not have buried him unless they knew of a certainty that he was dead. They knew that he was. And, and this statement here, that he was buried, it removes any doubt as to whether he was dead or not. He really was dead. He died just like he said that he would. Even when the Roman soldier took the spear and thrust it into his side and out gushed the blood and the water. And there is he hung there upon the cross. Many people, you know, we keep thinking about the fact how that man took his life and certainly Certainly they were guilty of murder, but never forget this. He gave his life. They could not have killed him had he not allowed it. There in the Garden of Gethsemane, whenever they came to arrest him, and Jesus said, Whom seek ye? They said, Oh, we're looking for this Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth, that city out of which they said nothing good can come from there. That's who we're looking for. They didn't say we're looking for Jesus Christ, the Messiah. They didn't say we're looking for someone to save us from our sins. They didn't say we're looking for the Lamb of God who came to give His life for our sin. We're looking for Jesus. They used His earthly name and associated with Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am. And what happened? They went backward and fell to the ground. They came to arrest Him and they found themselves at His mercy. He could have called 10,000 angels. He could have killed every one of them, but He didn't. He submitted Himself into their hands, and He voluntarily died, and His death was confirmed not only by the Roman government, but confirmed by those disciples themselves, because they would not have buried Him had He not been literally dead. He died, and He was buried. The third element, notice he says, that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now he repeats that phrase according to the Scriptures because it is a reference to the Old Testament prophecies that had been given. In fact, you could say it's a reference to, to the promise that he made himself, that he would rise again after he had, after he had died. Of all of the miracles ever wrought, this is the greatest of all. We think about Him raising Lazarus from the dead. But remember, Lazarus 
died again later. When Jesus was raised from the dead, He was raised to die no more. Amen? This is the greatest miracle of all. Remember, as I said, the disciples at the very beginning, they had their doubts about this. They wanted to prevent His death, and then whenever it was determined that He's not here, He has risen, and they they scratched their heads in unbelief. They couldn't believe it. I mean, who's ever heard of anything like this? That shocking news just was absolutely more than they could handle at that stage of their spiritual development. They just simply could not believe that. And yet, whenever they discovered for themselves that He had arisen from the dead, all of a sudden it transformed them entirely. It gave them comfort and a courage they had never had before. It caused them to rejoice. Listen, they rejoiced because that meant the resurrection of all of their buried hopes and dreams and happiness. I mean, when Jesus died, they were thinking to themselves, what are we going to do now? We have followed Him. We have depended upon Him. We have looked to Him for absolutely everything. And now, He's gone. What, what, what do we do? In fact, some of them said, I'm going fishing. Really? Because all hope seemed to be gone, buried in that grave. But when they realized He's not here, He has risen like He said, all of a sudden it raised their hopes and now their heart is filled with happiness because now they realize that He is indeed who He claimed to be. Then we see something else about this. Not only is it the gospel described for us in unmistakable terms, But this greatest news also is deliverance for us. Look at verse number 2 again. He says in verse 2, By which also ye are saved. That word saved means to be delivered. It means rescued from danger or destruction. It means to heal or to restore. You know, you go back through history and you you find the record of many thrilling rescues that have taken place over the years. Maybe, maybe men trapped in a, in a coal mine. Maybe a little girl out in West Texas, you know, that's fallen down into a well and, and it seems to be no hope and finally they get that precious little girl out of that well. And we think about men that have served in the armed forces on the battlefield and in situations where it seemed like death was intimate, that there was going to be no escape whatsoever. And suddenly there was a rescue of some sort, a rescue operation that delivered them from that. But let me tell you, throughout all of history and all of the rescues that have ever taken place, there's nothing that can compare to this because the gospel delivers us from the penalty of sin for one thing that's why we sing that old song the record's clear today for he washed my sins away the old account was settled long ago thank god it is 
I was so ashamed of myself as a sinner. I was so ashamed of the fact that I had hurt so many people and lived without disregard for my wife or my children or my parents or anybody else. And what a great day it was that day that I realized that through trusting Jesus Christ, that the penalty of my sins have all been taken care of. Paid in full. Amen. That's why we sing the records clear today. It is because it, through the through the good news, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're saved from the penalty of sins. We're being saved from the power of our sins. God begins a rescue program delivering us from the power of sin in our life. None of us are perfect right now. Oh, we've got you know such a long way to go. But if you're a child of God, believe me, God is working in your life to purify your life and to deliver you from the power of sin. And then we have the wonderful promise that one day we're going to be delivered from the very presence of sin and enter into the very presence of God. All of that is deliverance for us. And whenever Paul says, "...by which also ye are saved..." Paul understood that because everything I just said is something that Paul has written about. All of it. Being, you know, delivered from. Being delivered from. And then going to be delivered. Paul mentions all of those things. And he has all of that in mind whenever he says to the Corinthians, by which also ye are saved. Paul knew what he was talking about because Paul himself had been delivered by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, it's deliverance for us. It's just so heartbreaking to see so many people in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ and yet here God on one hand is offering you the greatest thing in all of the world and you seem to have no interest in it at all. How sad it is that we'll let Satan distract us by things that are absolutely meaningless, things of no eternal value, when the Lord is offering you eternal life. He's offering you a sure forgiveness of your sins. And today could be your day of deliverance by trusting Him. But there's something else here also and we could begin reading in, you know, verse number 5 and go all the way to verse number 58. And this is what we would see, that this greatest news, the gospel, is declared by us. You see, it's not just deliverance for us, it's declared by us. Look again what he says in verse 1. I declare unto you the gospel, notice, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received. Verse number 3. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. Paul is simply saying, I received it, and now I'm reporting it to you. And he urges them as he goes on throughout these verses, and he comes down to verse number 58. And notice what he says to those church folks there. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Serving God's not always as easy as we, you know, might make it out to be. 
It can be tough. Jesus warned his followers, it's going to be tough. You're going to be hated and despised. There will be people that will misunderstand you, people that will mistreat you. It's going to be tough. And Paul understood that because he himself had suffered repeatedly. And now he is urging them, he's urging them to declare what they have received, what had been declared to them. And let me tell you, if you've been delivered by the gospel, there's no reason why you wouldn't want to declare the gospel to others. I mean, how could we call ourselves a Christian? How could we claim that we love God and claim that we love others and then refuse to tell others of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ? How could we do that? And, and why would we need anyone to urge us to do so? It's kind of like, you know, the, the gold miners, you know. I, I, we found gold. You know, you want to report that good news. It's kind of like Salk's vaccine that, you know, that delivered so many from polio. I'm, you, look, you don't find the solution to something so important and then keep it to yourself. Notice in verse number 34, he says to the church there, Awake to righteousness and sin not. Now get this, for some have not the knowledge of God. Let's stop there a minute. Isn't that a horrible shame to think of some that have not the knowledge of God? I didn't have the knowledge of God before I was saved. Oh, I had reached a point in my life where I believed that there must be some kind of a divine being. As I've said so many times as a boy, I lay out there in the backyard at night where we slept a lot of times in the hot summertime, lay there and look up at the stars, watching for shooting stars. And even then, although I'd never been in church in my life, didn't attend church, didn't read the Bible, didn't know anything, I, I, I knew enough to know that there must be some kind of a God that all of this could not just happen, you see. So, so I knew something about there being a God, but I didn't have a knowledge of God. I didn't know anything about Him. And here are these people He's speaking of. He says, these folks have no knowledge of God. Now, some of them might have been church members there, and evidently they were a part of that church. But they didn't have a knowledge of God. And that could have reference to those living in that community, people there without a knowledge of God. And, and by the way, without a knowledge of God, nobody will ever be saved. We're not saved by giving our mental assent to historical facts. We're not saved by just knowing things, but knowing things is extremely important. You can't be saved without knowing the gospel. So he says there are those there in Corinth that have no knowledge of God, but then notice what he says, I speak this to your shame. Let me tell you, it's a shameful thing that those of us who know the Lord do not instruct those who don't. Paul had delivered to others what had been delivered to him, and now he's telling them, I want you to go, I want you to do the same thing. Go preach Christ, go tell others. No sooner than, than I got saved, all of a sudden I got concerned about mom and dad. Concerned about my kids. I'll never forget talking to dad so many times about his need of salvation. 
he seemingly was a hopeless case. I mean, it just absolutely seemed like I'm not getting anywhere. And so many times I felt like, you know, I might as well just give up. He's got his mind made up. He says he's just as good as any of those church folks down there, and, and maybe he's right about that, but he needs to be saved. He doesn't understand it. He's not interested in it. That's why Paul is saying, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work, in the work of the Lord. Don't ever give up on those folks that are unsaved. They have not the knowledge of God. And for some of you, it's not the people in Corinth. For some of you, it's your blood relatives. For some of you, it's your neighbors, your co-workers, your classmates that have not the knowledge of God. They've never received the greatest news in all of the world. They've never heard the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. They're not trusting in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And they're one heartbeat away from a devil's hell and you've never told them about the greatest news ever. Let me tell you, that's cause for concern. We ought to care more than that. There are many of you here that if you're driving down the road and you see someone severely injured laying in a ditch alongside the road, you wouldn't hesitate a second to stop and render aid. You care enough that you will want to help that poor soul get to the hospital and get help because you care. But don't you understand that that person, you know, that person that's make, maybe got a six-figure income, driving a new car, living in a mansion, they seem to have it all, and yet they have not Christ. And they're worse, far worse off than the fellow out there in the ditch. They're far worse off than the person in the cancer ward of the hospital they're far worse off than the person that, that has had a heart attack because they're one heartbeat, one breath away from a devil's hell. And by the grace of God, someone delivered to you the greatest news ever. Wow, I, I didn't know what I was looking for when I started going to church. I just knew I needed something and started going to church and realize this is the greatest news I've ever heard. I, I've never heard anything like this. And, and I, I believed it, simply received it, and God saved my wretched soul and changed my life. How could I not want to tell others about that? Many years ago, it might have been World War II, or somewhere back in there, the King of England was giving an address to the people in America. And in some way or another, with, you know, back then they didn't have all of the technical equipment that we've got today. In some way or another, in giving that message across the ocean, a cable broke. And I read the, the newspaper account of that, of course, many years later. And giving the, the report and not, you know, here he was in a situation trying to address our nation. They don't have time to make the repairs. But one of the technicians there realized that in some way or another, by holding one end of the cable, 
in one hand and the other end of the cable in the other hand, your body being a great percentage of water and what have you, that the current literally flowed through him and the message, as the newspaper said, the message was delivered to those in America as a result of that technician holding each end of that broken cable. What a glorious illustration that is related to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because this morning I've taken hold with one hand of the greatest news ever. And I'm reaching out to you with the other hand trying to get to you the life-giving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only message the only message in all of the world that's able to save your soul is all by simply believing, trusting in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Have you trusted Him as your Lord and Savior? If you haven't, I beg you this morning, please don't leave this building till you settle that in your heart. Maybe you say, well, preacher, I've got so many questions in my mind, so many things I don't understand. Don't worry about it. You don't need to understand it all. All you need to do is to know enough to know that you're a sinner, that Jesus is the perfect Savior, that He died for you, He was buried to prove it, He rose again from the grave, and He promised that whosoever will may come. He promised that He would save you this morning. And if you're here today and you've been saved, are you delivering to others what somebody delivered to you? Think about it. The cable is in your hands. You could say that you have your hand on the cable that's been delivered to you. But if you drop the cable, the connection is broken and it will not reach out to those that need the message. God forbid that we drop the cable, that we lose the connection, that we fail to deliver the message, the only message with the power to save our soul. If you drop the cable, wouldn't this be a great day for you to come? You see, a lot of times we expect the unsaved people to respond to a message we expect them to do that because we know that's just what they need. And yet we'll sit right there and act like, you know, there's not a thing in the world wrong with us. Notice again what Paul said. He said, awake, awake to righteousness and sin no more. You see, the biggest hindrance to the unsaved person being saved is those of us who claim to be. Not living what we profess that we believe. And our difference is our testimony because when they see Jesus in us, it'll make all the difference in the world as to their willingness to listen to what we say. Do they see Jesus in you or did you drop the cable? God help us to deliver the message. Let's stand together. Father, how thankful I am for those that you used in my life to bring me the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, I just thank you so much for saving my wretched soul, for changing my life, for giving me exceeding great and precious promises of things to come. 
And Lord, I pray this morning for that man or woman, maybe a boy or girl that's here today and they've never been saved. They might be a church member, might be a good person, a good neighbor and all of that, but they've never really truly been born again. And they don't have that joy and that peace that comes from knowing that they're a child of God, from knowing that, that they have a home in heaven. Lord, help them to settle that this morning. Help them to trust You to do what You promised. And Heavenly Father, for those of us that, that have been saved, may we take serious our great responsibility to deliver what was delivered to us and to get the life-giving message of the Gospel to those that have no knowledge of God. For we beg it in Jesus' name. Amen.